You're listening to Driving Law, a podcast by Kyla Lee about all things related to the rules of the road. Hello, and welcome to another episode of Driving Law. I am Kyla Lee at Acumen Law, and with me, my co-host, Paul Doroshenko. Hi, Kyla. I'm glad to be uh, recording in the office in what will eventually be officially <laughs> our podcast recording studio. Right now, it um, might be just a room that has, like, carpet and blankets on poles in the corners, but... <laughs> well, they did get rid of much of the echo, yeah. some of the echo. There's still an echo, Sorry. but... Um, we, we have the stuff, it's just a matter of time putting it all together, so we will actually have a podcast studio, which is great, fantastic. Uh, it seems like we were, as I say in the uh, pirate videos, adrift, and now we finally have our forever office. Forever office, which is already covered in dog hair because Wrigley gets to come in. One of the benefits of having your own forever office. Yes, so we have lots to cover today. You got two decisions from Ontario that are kind of working on a theme here. Yeah, with this I guess is like refusal to blow a week. Well, that after you had your TikTok that went uh, super viral about um, refusing the second sample. Of course, in BC it's different than in other jurisdictions. If you're pulled over and the police uh, compel you to provide a sample, you provide a sample if you get a fail. You have an option to provide a second sample, and it's one you say in your TikTok video, which I think is the correct, um, the correct uh, advice generally. It's uh, a trap. Is to not blow a second time. Yes. Um, but of course, you don't have legal advice there at the roadside when it's an ASD investigation, and that's one of the things that arises from these two cases that you've got. So, um, this is a. Really following up on uh, maybe the first week of October should be called ASD Refusal Week. ASD Refusal Week. You know, there is kind of like a spike in ASD refusals around this time of year. I wonder why that is. Well, there's a spike in ASD refusals, as we know, as a result of COVID. Yes, we have seen cases with COVID um, and people having difficulty blowing as a result of COVID. Lots of cases like that. And they continue. And they will continue until we have a sort of way to reconcile all of that. But this week in ASD Refusal Week, the first thing that we should talk about is making a demand and then explaining the consequences of not complying with the demand. See, this is something I see all the time in IRP cases where mm -hmm. the police will make the ASD demand. The ASD demand is a very specific demand, right? Um, and it is specific and sometimes I think intentionally confusing for most people. But it, um, you know, when you make the demand, you make the demand and it spells out the obligation. It's not an option. You must do it. Yes. Uh, although, so the issue we're dealing specifically with is a case called Masadilla, Masalita. Um, this individual was given an ASD demand and he said, I don't want to do it. And the officer said, well, if you refuse to blow, it's the same as providing a fail on the breathalyzer. Now, in BC, that's sometimes true. Sometimes true, but it's no longer a criminal code demand. Nope. And in Ontario, it's not true. <laughs> 
Well, uh, an ASD in Ontario will elevate the police officer's opinion from a reasonable suspicion of alcohol in the body to reasonable and probable grounds to conclude that the person uh, has a prohibited blood alcohol concentration within three hours after driving. Mm-hmm. Um, and so it may lead to a further criminal investigation, a breath demand, and so forth. Uh, but it uh, it's, it's not the same as a fail, because a fail is something different. Uh, refusal and a fail are have different consequences. Yes. There is no actual consequence to a fail in Ontario, except the further detention well, you and get, further like, investigation. You could get an administrative license suspension and not be charged criminally. That's, that's true, and that's part of the confusion for the police there. And, of course, your right to counsel is suspended, right? So you got a police officer there giving you wrong legal advice. Yep. In circumstances where you're not allowed to have legal advice because in this rare occasion, the criminal code says your charter rights are suspended. Yeah. So the police told him the consequences will be the same as if you register a fail. And he was like, oh, I guess that means that the same is I'll go to the police station and I'll get a further opportunity to blow there because that would be what happened if I failed a breathalyzer. Makes perfect sense. And I... I think both of the officers in some uh, part in their questioning or or some part of their testimony uh, conceded that they knew that that's what would take place if the individual had provided a sample that was a fail. Yes. So, he was acquitted. Yeah. And he was acquitted because he didn't have the mental intent to refuse because he misunderstood because the police officers gave him the wrong legal advice. And the decision, if you want to find it, is uh, Massalida, M-A-S-S-A-L-I-D-A, 2022 ONCJ 451. And the discussion on mens rea is pretty good. It begins around paragraph 111, so you can skip everything else and go right to that part. (laughs) Because that's the reason he was acquitted. But it comes down to just a couple of lines in the end, I think. Yeah, paragraph 112, the court says, I find that Rosano made a valid demand for breast samples for Masalita. The officer read it from his standard OPP-issued card. However, Masalita did not know and did not understand fully what Rosano was requiring of him. Masalita had no option to refuse. Yet, what the police clearly indicated to Masalita was that his verbal refusal to provide a sample of his breath equated to a fail result, as if that were obtained on the ASD. The police thereby gave Masalita misleading, incorrect information. So they created an option, and we see this all the time, where police Mm -hmm. tell an individual, well, here's your options. If you refuse, you're going to get a 90-day immediate roadside prohibition, and if you provide a sample and you get a fail, you're going to get a 90-day immediate roadside prohibition. So you have the option, and that's not... Correct. And it's police officers in BC doing it incorrectly. So if you're a police officer listening to this, uh, tell the uh, your fellow officers, don't go giving people legal advice that they have an option because it is an obligation under the criminal code. So I know while you were looking for our cases and discussion topics today, because I was running around going to court all over the lower mainland and winning all my cases, I should point out. <laughs> Uh, you were finding these cases, and you highlighted that part as the important part, but I really like this case for the discussion of the note-taking, because neither officer made good notes. In particular, they didn't write specifically what they told Mr. Masalita about the consequences of refusing. They didn't write specifically what he said 
about refusing. And it's clear from the uh, decision that there was a lot of cross-examination on the issue of notes. And in paragraph 114, the judge says, I am, more importantly, quite deeply troubled by Rosano's, Rosano's failure to make any note in his duty book of Masalita saying no or waving his hands to indicate that he did not wish to comply with the officer's demand. Rosano did not make any note of what specific words or gestures Masalita used to signify he was refusing to comply with the officer's demand. Surely those words, and arguably those gestures made by the accused, constitute the actus reus of the offense. The only note Rosano made regarding the entire interaction between the issuance of the demand and the alleged refusal was accused asked to step out of vehicle and read ASD demand, and he refused. This is something that we see um, starting with cases out of Ontario more than anything and expanding a lot in the last 15 years. This um, comments by the court on the police officer's failure to make good notes. In this case, the officer had two pages of notes and the court said, look, that's just not enough. And the officer agreed. The officer yeah. agreed when it was, it was like, put to him in cross-examination um, that uh, <laughs> two pages of notes in an impaired driving case uh, are not sufficient. You're talking about giving somebody a criminal um, record for uh, if they're convicted on the basis of two pages of notes on this short interaction. But how I'm often sorry. do we see in IRP cases, you know, just a bare, he refused to provide a sample? Oh, it's very often. Very often. And you're trying to figure it out. Was it word or gesture? Was it something that he did? How did he, how did he refuse? I don't understand. But of course, in IRPs, the police rarely provide their notes. And that's really to their, you know, to the detriment of, of the police case. Um, because when I've seen notes provided in IRP cases, more often than not, it will support the police officer's version of events with a contemporaneous uh, recording of it. Um, but, um, you know, the police don't feel that they have to submit it. And uh, again, it's one of those things that sort of works against them. Yes. Now, we have a second refusal case. It's, uh, it's refusal week, I'm telling you. It's ASD refusal week. ASD refusal week, and this one may seem somewhat <clears throat> similar. Eerily familiar to a recent BC Supreme Court decision. So this case is uh, Vinasan Arudselvam. I cannot pronounce that. Uh, you don't have to pronounce it, Kyla. You can just say a case, another case from the Ontario Court of Justice. Yes. Uh, 2022 ONCJ 445. Uh, this case, um, there's a motor vehicle accident. Uh, the police make a demand for an ASD sample. There are three attempts that are not successful and ultimately a refusal. Um, the accident was a sort of one of those chain reactions where one vehicle strikes another, which strikes another um, at an intersection. Uh, the... Um, uh, the accused was apparently accused. operating a BMW. Yeah, it was in a BMW X3, SUV, which was like the rear. The small one, and he was the first vehicle first. to strike the others. Yes. And the police <laughs> the detected slurred speech, and there was a bottle of vodka on the floor of the car. And there was a discussion about whether or not that forms a reasonable suspicion. And there was enough there. I thought that was a stretch. But interesting. more interesting is when um, this fellow tries to provide his samples, because he's just been in an accident with airbags that have gone off. He's been treated by paramedics. He's been taken to the hospital. Now he's 
in the hospital, and the paramedics have, or the hospital people have said that there's nothing serious, there's no significant trauma. Yes, and uh, he essentially uh, tries to blow. The officer says that his lips were loosely wrapped around the mouthpiece. How often do we hear that one? Um, uh, that it did not register, that he was restricting the flow of breath with his teeth. And it was just like blowing bubbles in, in, yeah. in a he drink. S- he, sucked, he sucked on the machine. <laughs> that that's all you need to do. He sucked on it uh, instead of instead of blowing into it very short burst of breath like all the all the things that we hear them say all the time that we never see on video no you never see it, it but it's all the things that they're taught to look for that they pretend they see or think they see maybe i don't know well who knows i don't know they're trying to figure out why this is not being obtained um so he's warned about not providing a sample he still doesn't blow he asks for another attempt and the officer tells him no and uh, this is essentially the uh, the evidence of the crown. Now, the accused testified. He said he tried his best, that he was having really bad chest pain after being hit by the airbag. Um, he said that his pain was an 8 on a 1 to 10 scale, soreness in the middle of his chest, his lower back in pain. Um, he says he told the police in his language in Tamil that he was in severe pain. And he conceded that he was worried about the impaired driving investigation. Yeah. He conceded that he that uh, you know he knew that he drank and he had drank from that bottle of vodka, and he was he was worried about it. But he wasn't trying to obstruct. He was actually in pain. He was attempting to provide a sample, and he was experiencing this pain. And he said that the pain lasted for about five days after the incident, but there was no like medical cause for it. Well, and he didn't go to a doctor or anything like that after nope. that, um, which just happened to be the evidence. But um, maybe the most compelling thing was the significance of the accident itself. Yes. And so the court looks again at um, mens rea and um, looks at this notion of intentional refusal and then finds that this is really an issue of reasonable excuse um, and that he should have, whether he should have a reasonable excuse on the basis of his medical situation after the accident, even though he didn't have a confirmed diagnosis. So reminds you a lot of that IRP case we talked about a couple weeks ago. Yeah, and it's uh, it just looks like here he's uh, gone and got, you know, basically presented more compelling evidence by um, testifying. the court testifying. Uh, covering the things that he needed to cover in his testimony. So, Although you know, I would also say being subjected to cross-examination. That's true, and that's something we don't get in the IRP scheme. Yeah. So, you know, when we're writing affidavits for clients in, in IRP cases, we're basically trying to cover both angles. We're trying to... We pretty much cross-examine pretty them much in cross our office. We pretty much cross-examine after we've done the, the um, you know, sort of gone through a more or less a direct examination, then we have to do something of a cross-examination. Because we've got to put all those theories of the case to the individual. I noticed you were asked about that on TikTok this week, again, putting the theory of the case, um, basically. Um, so the photos, I think, of the collision were probably, and the significant damage to the vehicle were probably one of the most essential things the judge hung their hat on here. You know, and I don't think that you can really say that there's much difference here in the sense of um, the IRP scheme, putting the burden on the accused or on the 
applicant to prove the case. Because in the context of raising a reasonable excuse, it is your burden to prove that the reasonable excuse existed on a balance of probabilities. Same obligation, balance of probabilities. It's the same burden, yeah. yeah. So, I mean, this case is a good example if you heard our podcast about, like, you know, how you might not want to do it. This one might be a good example of how to do it. How to do what? Prove a reasonable excuse of an injury oh. after an accident. Oh, yeah, for sure. Yeah. I mean, the, the point is you can't just rely on the fact of an accident and the fact of an alleged injury. You've got to be able to flesh it out more. Um, and, um, of course, you know, one court may go one way and one court may go another as well. So it's a... Yeah, I mean, the court, the court at paragraph 101 does make the point that they found Mr. Arad Selvam to be a credible witness, uh, that he readily admitted that he'd been drinking, which was not the case in that IRP. Um, he gave frank evidence that well, he was... Well, in that IRP as well, that, that individual like, was, was lying there at the roadside, right? He, yeah. He said he had a drink afterward. But of course, that could have been attributed to shock. And sure. if it was properly explained in the evidence, that might have been accepted by the court. Yeah. Um... And, uh, you know, there was also an issue here with the officer, again, sort of not properly explaining the consequences of not providing a sample. Um, apparently, the officer didn't even say anything about it. He just pointed to his handcuffs as though the accused was supposed to understand. Well, and then handcuffed him to the, to the uh, hospital bed. Well, <laughs> <laughs> just... just in case he needs an MRI. <laughs> Um, but the, uh, the court says it doesn't really matter that I have concerns about some of the, you know, ways in which the, uh, police conducted the investigation or the truthfulness of some of the police's evidence. Um, the focus here is really on the defendant's actions and his medical condition. The onus lies with the defendant to satisfy this court. He had a reasonable excuse. So it makes the point that, you know, it's the same burden. And the court says uh, that they considered that he didn't sustain permanent injuries. Um, he's taken into account the officer's uh, description of how easy it is to provide a breath sample. Um, but he says that he's satisfied on balance that the provision of breath sample would have been, in the circumstances, extremely difficult or painful and or uncomfortable. In other words, his chest pain prevented the defendant from producing a proper sample. And uh, then accepted that he made a genuine attempt to communicate um, his uh, uh, medical distress. But I, I think this paragraph's important, 118, where the court refers to a BC Court of Appeal case, for all you BC listeners out there, that says, in determining the reasonableness of the excuse, the trial judge is entitled to take into account whether or not the excuse was communicated to the officers at the time of the demand or attempted taking of the sample, which I think is so important because it essentially puts a burden on you to assert your excuse in some way. Which I think is wrong, uh, especially when you don't have legal advice, but one would imagine looking at sort of logically how it plays out that you're thinking to yourself, well, if the guy's got some reason, oh, it's if hurting. it's hurting, he's going to say something. Yeah. But of course, in this case, there was a, there was a language issue too. Yeah. So. He said he tried to communicate it in Tamil. So that's, uh, that's the refusal evidence. Well, that's all interesting, Kyla, and those are great cases on refusal, and I guess the next thing coming up is my favorite part of the podcast, which is 
the Ridiculous Driver of the Week, coming up next. A surprising bestseller? The pinpoint method of cross-examination is catching on. Law firms and new litigators across Canada have caught on to cross-examination the pinpoint method. Kyla Lee's straightforward handbook that teaches you effective cross-examination skills. All right, so Kyla, uh, the Ridiculous Driver of the Week was one found by uh, Jay from Brazen Bull today and sent it to me. It's actually from uh, Twitter, uh, Noodle71, it's uh, Greg N, Noodle71, at Noodle71. <laughs> and this is, um, it looks like he is riding his bike with his six-year-old daughter, um, or six-year-old, yeah, on the, uh, riding on the sidewalk. And this is somewhere in the UK. And they're riding along, uh, and uh, she's on the sidewalk, he's on the road, he's got a helmet cam, and they come upon someone who just parks their vehicle on the sidewalk, on the wrong side of the road, proceeds to get out of their vehicle, and then berate the six-year-old for riding their bike on the sidewalk. <laughs> so, um, pretty bad. Well, I mean, the six-year-old was in the wrong Riding on the sidewalk? Yeah, it's illegal. The guy parks on the sidewalk and basically blocks a six-year-old and then goes to get out of his car and blocks a six-year-old from going by um, Paul, and then berates the six-year-old. Paul, that's a citizen's arrest. <sighs> I don't think so. <laughs> anyway, the father the father is uh, on there and the, the audio from the father is basically telling the guy, like, what kind of fucking asshole says something like this, but... In any event, that was uh, that was a pretty ridiculous driver. Ridiculous I, driver parking. I'm sorry, but there is there in my mind there is some justification for parking on the sidewalk to prevent the child from continuing the commission of an offense. Oh bullshit! You know it. We we had two cycling. It's, we had a potential other cycling one, and that was uh, a cyclist. You know, in this case, you're going against the the daughter cyclist, the six year old. We also had the cyclist who was caught uh, speeding in a in parks in. In Toronto, 26 kilometers uh, an hour, and the speed limit's 20 kilometers an hour. And so the cyclist community is up in arms. You may want to piss off the cyclist community again and make them the ridiculous Again, driver. again, I think that they all still hate me. Yeah, they probably do. Anyway, <laughs> ridiculous driver of the week is the guy who parked the car and berated the six-year-old. Perfect. Well, I guess my legal advice to you is if you're six, ride your bike on the right side of the road, on the roadway. And if you're the father of that child, teach your child good habits. And if you're an adult, maybe deal with it more reasonably. Pull the dad aside and be like, hey, this is unlawful. You probably should teach your child to follow the law. My legal advice is if you're 10 years old or under, you should be fine to ride on the sidewalk. Just be really, really careful. Actually, if you're 12 or under, you can't even be prosecuted. So well, There you go. If you're 12 <laughs> or under, ride on the sidewalk all you want. Do Just whatever be, you want. Be really, really Cause careful. Chaos. And uh, don't berate uh, kids for riding their bikes on the sidewalk, especially when you've just parked the wrong way uh, on halfway on the sidewalk and halfway on the road. There you go. Well, that's our podcast. And if you need to find us to discuss a driving law-related issue or a ticket for riding on the sidewalk or parking on the sidewalk, give us a call at 604-685-8889 or find us online at vancouvercriminallaw.com and tune in next week for another exciting episode of Driving Law.